You're listening to the Home Staging Show podcast. I'm your host, Nibblin. This is the show where we talk about all things real estate, home staging, and selling your home to live and to sell. Welcome back to season nine. This is episode six. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Home Staging Show podcast. So on today's show, I'm interviewing Courtney Poulos, who is a broker owner of Acme Real Estate, a design savvy boutique brokerage focusing on brand marketing and real estate sales. Courtney is a member of Forbes Real Estate Council, a repeat panelist at the Inman Connect, and awesome females in real estate. She's also a panelist and EMC for the California Association of Realtors Women Up Initiative. She recently was the host of FYI Network's "My City Just Not That Into Me," where she played real estate matchmaker with buyers and sellers nationwide. She's been selling real estate since 2005. Corning's state mission is to help women achieve financial independence through real estate investment. Her latest book, "Break Up with Your Rental: The Professional Woman's Guide to Building Wealth Through Real Estate," is now available nationwide. So Courtney is a powerhouse in real estate, and she's incredibly knowledgeable when it comes to buying and selling real estate. So in today's interview, she shares a lot about her personal experiences working in real estate, and also as a brokerage owner. We talk a lot about ways for listings to stand out in the marketplace, what makes a successful listing agent, and also what makes a great staging and a great stager. We also talk about investing as a woman. It is a really great show today, and I hope you'll enjoy it. So hi, Courtney. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about your background? How did you get into real estate, and what kind of services do you offer now? Sure. So my name is Courtney Polis. I own a company called Acme Real Estate. We're a design boutique brokerage in Los Angeles. I've been selling real estate for almost 15 years, which is crazy. And before that, I was—you、um, name it—I was it. I was a singer, an actor, a front desk girl, PR person. I, I did everything, everything. I've worked three jobs for the majority of my life until I found real estate. And now, now that I found it, I want to share the wealth with everyone. That's great. We do residential real estate at Acme Real Estate. We do residential real estate primarily. We do have a couple commercial deals here and there, but really our specialty is renovation resale, which is a fancy name for we sell the best flips in LA. That's great. I love that.、Um, I love the name renovation resale. I've never heard that before. That's great. I know. I made that up. <laughs> That's awesome. And so, what is your local real estate market like right now? So interest rates are still pretty low, and we have a lot of qualified buyers who haven't found their right house yet. So we are still seeing multiple offers on our properties in the heart of LA. The thing that I am noticing, though, is that buyers are exhausted, and so a lot of properties are going into escrow and falling out of escrow. So if the renovation isn't done. Very well, and there are inspection issues. They don't hang in there. Sometimes they don't even send over a request for a repair or credit. They just back out completely and keep on the hunt. I do think with Redfin, Trulia, and Zillow, and these different online aggregator services, buyers get addicted to searching. They look at pretty pictures and they get really excited about hunting. And then every time they get one in escrow, they're like,、mm, "But what if something better is going to come around the corner?" So it's definitely fragile in some ways, but the buyers are qualified and they're still there. 
right now my biggest challenge in our market is helping sellers understand that they need to be a little bit more flexible in order to make the deal work and to encourage them not to overprice and to build in a margin for market fluctuation. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And that's actually really fascinating as well. It sounds like the buyers are... I don't know, is this the better word to describe it? Like FOMO, fear of missing out. So they just keep searching for the next better deal. Yeah, I think that there is some element of feeling like it's possible that they're putting an offer in on a property they like today, but that something great is going to come on the market next weekend. And or when they're in escrow, then they see something that comes up the next weekend and they're like, maybe we should cancel on this one and write on that one, you know? So they're not having an easy time making choices. Right. So my job is to encourage people to trust their instincts and to remind them that whether it's this house or that house, it's probably a five to seven year house. So most first time home buyers only live in their first property for five to seven years. And that's a big part of our market between 500,000 and 2 million. It's mostly first time home buyers. So, you know, it's not the house that has to be in the best school district with the big flat yard, et cetera, et cetera. Like it has to be a house that works for you for the next five to seven years. So it's okay to like more than one property, but at the end of the day, you have to pick one. Right, right. That's true. And so are you finding this behavior more with first-time home buyer or is it pretty even across the board? It's mostly first-time home buyers. Yes. And our market is being sustained by first-time home buyers. I know that in some of the higher price points, they've seen a lot slower sales. Like there takes longer to sell in the luxury market and you're seeing big reductions. So a $10 million house might come down to 8 million, like that kind of thing. Whereas in our markets, it's pretty easy to comp each of the sales. So you know, okay, a two bedroom, one bath that's totally renovated in Eagle Rock is probably going to go for around 900. So you know roughly where something's going to land because there are so many competing properties that are similar. Right. Yeah. So it's mostly first time home buyers and they are the ones who have to suffer the most like psychological changes throughout the process. Going from renting to buying is kind of like going from a salary job to an independent contractor job. So you really have to trust yourself and know that you're making like such a smart decision by taking the reins. But you also, it comes with a lot of fear. Like you have to work through a lot of fear when you're a first time home buyer, which is crazy to me because as I remind my first time home buyers, you're not really paying the price of the house. You're paying 20% of the price of the house at a 4% interest rate amortized over 30 years with a tax break. So like this is a really well thought out leveraged decision, you know? It's the least scary investment you can make because you're essentially moving your money from one bank to the next. Whereas with a rental, if you add up all the months of rent that you've been paying over the course of your life, you'll see that you've spent maybe $400,000 in rent that you will never see again. It's just a net loss. That's a very good point. I definitely think that real estate is really a very important and very effective wealth builder because I've seen that with my own clients as well. And I love your analogy, actually, going from a salary job to a freelancing job, because there's a lot of uncertainties. And I actually see that in decor decision as well, because you can kind of see where 
when people are coming in from rental homes, they are very restricted because in rental homes, you can't paint the walls, you can't put holes in the walls, right. all that stuff. And then so when they're, they're shopping for houses, they don't actually have any imagination left because they're so used to living in that rental box. Totally, 100%. And that's why we rely on our designers. And we have several agents at Acme who are actually interior designers by trade, but we rely on our designers and stagers and design contacts to help bring our buyer's vision to fruition, or shall I say, to make the property that they end up buying turn into the home that they saw in the pictures. Yeah, so I I think that's really interesting. So now as a brokerage owner, in your opinion, because you're overseeing all these agents now, what makes a successful real estate agent? A successful real estate agent has, there are a few qualities, really. One is that you have to know your audience, as in you have to figure out who hears you when you speak. So when I first got into real estate, I was trained by this extraordinary agent named Polly Driscoll in Washington, D.C., and she was getting ready to retire. She was about four years from retirement when I started working with her. All of her clients were young couples who really needed a maternal guide. And so when they would get me for the showing, I don't think they trusted me or like listened to what I had to say. They weren't my people. So those were her people. She spoke to them. For me, my people are my peers. I know that when I say to my clients, like, here's the cost of an HVAC and this is, you know, this is what you can do. Remove this wall and it's going to open this up and it's not a very expensive repair. They hear me when I say it. So I know that my people are my peers. So the first thing that makes a great real estate agent is knowing your audience. Who are the people that hear you and resonate with what it is that you're saying and who are the people that trust you? The next thing I think is establishing a point of view in your marketing. So if you're playing defense all the time, there's no attraction. People might not know you as an agent who kind of like has a something to offer different than another agent. For us, renovation resale has been that something different. So people who are flippers know that we market our renovated properties better than any other agent. So they come to us and our buyer clients know that we sell the best renovated properties in LA in certain price points. And so then they come to us. So we create an attraction because they know that we have the resources that are going to meet their exact needs. And if the house is a fixer, we've got the contractors who can turn it into the house that they are dreaming of. Uh, you know, that they're seeing in West Elm ads. So we know exactly how to get them what it is that they want, and they know that. The third thing is you can't do it part-time. Real estate is something that is a career. It takes a couple of years to really get your bearings about the law and the rights of your clients and how to know what you know and what you don't know. And I think a lot of real estate agents make a mistake when they get their license and then just wing it. You know, you're playing with millions of dollars of people's money. It's like you need a mentor. You need to be trained, not just in in the contracts, but also in etiquette. Agents make big mistakes when it comes to ethics and etiquette. Like, for example, I had, I have a client who we represent all of his resales, and there was an agent who wrote an offer on one of our properties, and she didn't win. She was not the 
you know, not the winning offer. And her clients were really upset about it, which is obviously understandable. But I got a phone call from my client saying that this agent had reached out to him directly, left a message on his answering machine and was like, hey, I'm so-and-so and we're the ones who represented the, the clients who lost out on this other property. Do you have anything coming up? And I'm like, that's so not ethical. You can't solicit other agents' clients. And that's a real like gray area in, um, it's only gray for rookies. Because once you have a reputation for being that person, you can't shake it off. Like nobody will want to work with you. So there's that. And then finally, ethics, speaking of it, what makes a really great real estate agent is their understanding of the code of ethics. And the National Association of Realtors Code of Ethics is very clear about what it is we owe to other professionals in our field, but also what we owe to our clients and our consumers. And one of those things that's really having an issue right now in my market is offer transparency. It seems that agents aren't presenting all offers, which is the law. You have to present all offers. So I'm actually running for the Beverly Hills Greater Los Angeles Association of Realtors Board of Directors so I can help push forward some new mechanisms for making sure our buyer's offers are being presented and agents who are not presenting offers are being held accountable. So those are a few things that I think make a really great real estate agent. You have to know what you're doing and how to represent your clients super well. Know your market niche and also who your target clients are and speak directly to their needs. Yeah, I think these are all very good points. And I was a little bit shocked when I heard you say that some agents don't present all the offers. That seems counterintuitive. It does seem counterintuitive. I'll give you an example. We had a client who saw a property on a Friday and offers were being presented as they come in, the agent told us. So my clients saw the property and they wrote an offer with an expiration of Saturday at noon. When they were at the open house on Friday, the sellers themselves were hosting the open house. I have no idea why. And the sellers said, come back tomorrow, come back tomorrow one, we're gonna let people in for a second look. So we wrote the offer on Friday, we submitted it to their agent on Friday with an expiration of Saturday at noon. So my clients went over to the property at one, as per the seller's invitation, the following day. And they said to the sellers, did you get our offer? Which would have expired by this time, by the way. And the seller said, no, we didn't get the offer. And I called the agent and I said, you didn't present our offer. It had an expiration. And he said, uh, you know what? Your clients shouldn't be talking directly to my clients. And I'm like, you're missing the point, man. You have a legal obligation to present every offer. My clients were furious. They called their attorneys. They were prepared to sue. I called the broker of that agent and I said, listen, we submitted on Friday. The agent knew our offer was coming. It had an expiration date and he chose not to present it to the sellers. And ultimately those sellers, a couple days later, ended up going with another offer thinking it was the buyers that they met, my buyers. So this agent was like, obviously had some motive for not presenting our offer. Like maybe he's in cahoots with the other agent writing an offer, or maybe he's guaranteed the listing on the resale once the work is done. I have no idea. But when I called his broker, his broker said, oh, maybe he's out of town, or maybe he didn't have time to do his due diligence. I'm like, you don't have that choice. An agent doesn't have the right to choose which offers the sellers see. Right. And this is a big, big problem. 
Also, apparently, there are a lot of discrimination complaints that are coming in with regard to offer presentation. So people are submitting offers and saying, my offers weren't presented. Is it because I'm gay or because I'm black or because I'm handicapped? Like, why isn't my offer being presented? And it comes off to the public like it might be discrimination, which the Department of Real Estate takes very, very seriously. And we should all be very concerned about. Yeah. And I believe you can lose your license over this. Of course you can. But the problem is the onus is on the buyer agent to prove that there was some wrongdoing. And without all the information, like for example, had my clients not gone over there on Saturday to the open house that the sellers were hosting the following day, they would not have known that their offer wasn't presented. We'd just get an email from the agent saying, sorry, uh, our clients chose another offer. Here's what makes it even worse. We do have the ability to ask the seller's agent to send us a rejection of offer which is just a line on the contract which says your offer's been presented and the seller's rejected. It's supposed to be signed by the seller. So I said, okay, agent, send me over the rejection to prove that our offer was presented. And he said to me, oh, well, I'll go over there in the next couple of days. They're packing now. And I'm like, hmm. So once I spoke to his broker, within two minutes, I had a rejection of offer that was dated the day before I even made the request. So I'm like, you sent me a forged rejection of offer? It's like crazy. It is crazy. And I believe the broker actually can be liable for it as well. The broker is supposed to be liable, but here's where you can't trust the police to police the police. Right. You know, it's the broker has an obligation, or I should say his job depends on his own ability to manage his agents. And he's answering to a corporate owner who says, why are you losing these agents? And oh, I'm cutting them because of ethical concerns. Like they're like, mm, no, you have to recruit 15 agents a month. You have to hit these target sales numbers like that. Broker has no incentive. He doesn't get a badge of honor for taking another broker's side when it comes to an agent dispute. And they will very, very rarely admit that they did something wrong. So the accountability rules are, are a little bit flawed right now, I have to say. And I think that it needs an overhaul. Yeah, I'm really so actually, I'm, I'm really happy you're bringing this that. up because I think it needs to be recognized. And then I think most general consumers have no idea what real estate agent exactly does. I think that is a huge major misconception. People think the real estate agent job is very easy. All realtors do is, you know, open the door and show the house and then they write an offer and ka-ching, 6%. But I think right. that is a huge misconception because if it's that easy, then, everyone would, be, then everyone would be a real estate agent. So can you... I know. I was yeah. actually talking to one of my, my agents about this. I'm like, maybe we're making it too, look too easy. We probably should show them more on like Instagram stories, what it is we're actually doing, because it is a 24 hour a day job that's filled with so many different roles. I'm a, you know, an accountant, a therapist, a, a project manager, a sales agent. Like I, I do so many jobs in one day for so many different people. Uh, they have no idea. I'm like, we're making it look too easy. People don't understand. I think but the so, reality yeah. is when the clients have a problem, the first person they blame is the real estate agent. So if we don't know our stuff inside and out, we definitely can suffer a bad, you know, bad review, which obviously on Zillow, you only want five-star reviewed agents, right? Exactly. And so can you shed some light on what is a typical day like for a full-time successful agent? 
Every day is different, which is a great part of the job, actually. Um, so in the mornings, I typically go out and see my listings and like I, I look at what properties are I'm about to put on the market and see what stage of renovation they're in. I also will meet with an agent, answer agent calls regarding questions about the contract or how to write a winning offer or some certain circumstance, uh, you know, why the HOA isn't responding to a legal request, et cetera, et cetera. And I put them in touch with attorneys if it's something outside the scope of my own knowledge. Um, I also uh, host open houses, of course, so we have to coordinate the, the food and the flyers, writing the marketing material. I have a social media management company, so we have to provide them with content. So we're taking snapshots and writing writing marketing pieces. I also frequently host events. So for example, this Saturday, I'm gonna be speaking on first-time home buying and bringing in some Instagram influencers and some celebrity actresses to talk about their fears and concerns and lessons learned to try and expose to the public the benefits of home ownership. So that's part of the day, planning that, writing the work. Gosh, there's so much. You know, I also am, of course, working with my stagers to make sure that each property that we're about to put on the market has the right feel to hit the target audience for that particular property. I'm meeting photographers at the photo shoots, and then at around 3 o'clock, I have to go pick up my kid and come home and, and do double duty <laughs> as real estate agent of the year and mom of the year. So it can be... A challenge because we work when when everybody's working and then we work when everybody's not working as well you know most most of our buyer clients and seller clients have full-time jobs so the real estate conversations happen in the evening right it's a balancing act there's quite a bit going on yeah and I, I'm assuming that you have to constantly be marketing as well and so how much marketing does an agent typically have to do to market their own business and then to market their listing as well that's a really good question. For each of our listings, we spend about $2,500, I'd say, in marketing. 650 to 1000 of that is on the photos. And if it needs drone, like 650 to 1000 for the actual photos, drone, flyers, and printing. And then for the open house events, you're going to need more flyers, and usually it's catered, so that's another $250. So I budget like 2000 to 2500 per listing because we also send out postcards for each of the listings. So we have to print those, pay for the postage, mailing, and the service that mails them. Um, and then, of course, we have our, our fees for our social media support, which is a couple grand a month. And then individual agents have the benefit of the internet, which is pretty affordable marketing. So you can do Facebook and Instagram boosted posts. And, you know, you can be out in the field taking photos of amazing houses and posting that on your Instagram and creating some sphere of influence marketing that turns into referrals. And that's something you can just do on an ongoing basis. So for us as a brokerage, we do bus bench ads, we do podcasts, we do uh, speaking events, and of course, our just general marketing, you know, postcard marketing and paper marketing. I love the touch of good paper. So I am always the brokers that has the best flyers. We have the sexiest flyers on the best paper. Really important because I think home buying is a tactile experience. That's great. I actually, I love that. I, I do think that you can tell by the quality of the representation by actually 
the materials they choose to use. Because if they're going to skimp on things like flyers, they're going to skimp on things probably like staging or other areas of stuff. So totally. yeah, I totally think it's it's actually very, very important. And what are some of the trends that you're seeing right now when it comes to marketing your listings? Um, well, it's a moving target, I have to say. We have very savvy buyers in Los Angeles. They know where to look for the hot listings. So we do make sure we spend a lot of money on our photos and staging. It's the most important part. It's the first thing that the buyers see. And now that everything's aggregated, there's no excuse for a buyer not knowing your properties on the market. So I'd say trend-wise, we're seeing more internet advertising and product placement, product placement, you know, listing placement on like design blogs and curbed and LA Times home of the week, that kind of thing. Like a little bit more money is being spent on getting those kinds of placements to make the listing stand out in a sea of listings. The more personal endorsements you can get, the better. And as a brokerage, we encourage all of our agents to promote our fellow agents' listings on their social media because they're such beautiful listings that it really adds to the brand value to have that kind of cross-promotion. A lot of brokerages, the agents compete with each other, but in our brokerage, we really try to support and cross-promote each other so that we can take one listing and send it out to 25,000 Instagram followers as opposed to maybe an individual agent's 2,000 followers apiece, you know? Yeah, and also you never know. Maybe their buyers are looking for something that you know someone in your exactly. agency is selling. So it's actually a, I think, a genius exactly. idea. Yeah, and it's very cost-effective too because it's within the the same roof, basically. Exactly, and so when what I encourage agents to do is look at what is happening in the areas that you are marketing in. So I live in West Hollywood, for example, and I'm not getting a ton of printed postcards from agents. I think a lot of agents are spending their money on the internet. So in my neighborhood, a postcard campaign might work because the volume of postcards I receive from real estate agents has gone down. And I can see what the neighbor's are doing, like what the neighborhood realtors are doing. So I know, okay, if I change the way this marketing is presented, it's going to stand out. It's not just going to be like, just listed, coming soon, you know, some standard thing. Maybe I take a picture of a really disgusting room with a thumb in the picture and say, is this the way you want your property marketed? We didn't think so. Like we're the specialists. We would never put an image of your house on the internet with a thumb in it. Like there are some horrible, horrible MLS photos. You know, you see agents take pictures out with their iPhone out their car window and you can still see the frame of the window. I'm like, what? Or my favorite is the toilet seat up, like bathroom photos with the toilet seat up. I'm like, why? You know? I know. I think there's an Instagram account that like focuses on these horrible listing photos. So if you look at what's happening in your exact area where you live and you want to farm that market, that's a great place to start. You can also market to your neighbors like, hey, I'm your neighbor. I live in this house and and I'm happy to give you a value of your home if you're thinking of refinancing, you know, something innocuous or whatever. The other thing is if you see that people, you know, you do the opposite of what you see people doing. So you find the hole and you fill that that hole. So you see nobody's having a real estate event in your neighborhood with neighbors only. Maybe you do that and that 
just helps you get to know people. We're a people, a people business. And the more people and the more conversations you're having about real estate in your regular life, the more successful you're going to be at marketing. Like you have to be one of the three people they think of when they think of real estate. So you have to keep constantly being in front of your prospective clients. Also, I, I heard this thing. I don't know if this is happening where you are, but I, I keep hearing like technology is going to replace real estate agents. No. Have you heard that? I've heard that. Because, uh, didn't some didn't brokerage just roll out this thing where, I don't know, I feel like it's someone always saying something like that, you know, like how it's going to replace. Because, always. And also stagers, in, within stagers, there's a concern because virtual staging is getting more and more popular. But I'm always like, it's never going to, replace someone who has the skills to pull a room together versus you know like do it in the photoshop like it just it's different skill sets exactly and ultimately when the client walks in to the apartment and it's not staged it's a totally different experience for the buyer one place where real estate will always be an in-person job and experience is you know, in the walkthrough, like you can't sell product, like you can sell other products online without people having to experience it first. But most people, when they're going to spend $700,000 on a property, they're not going to just be like buying it off the pictures unless they're way independently wealthy and don't care if they make a big mistake. That's not how it goes. Like everything for us in our success in our sales is about the experience that the buyer has when they walk into the space. So for example, we work with a lot of rehab artists. So houses smell like fresh paint and new cabinets, you know? So we invented room sprays. I worked with a perfumer studio in Los Angeles and I went in and we tested different samples. We added some fragrances, like we have four different types of home spray and that's what we spray at our at our open houses and it's this beautiful like palo santo and amazing scents very elevated not like a cheap air freshener it's like you know it's like la labo but for your home that's awesome <laughs> and, i love it yeah and and yeah, because it's the experience. So, you know, people walk in, they have this pleasant, there's a pleasant smell and they can touch the expensive flyers and see the beautiful pictures and the amazing staging. And they think this is what I expect my money could buy. And that's the experience you want to give people. So I agree with you. I don't think virtual staging can ever create that. And similarly, as much PR, as I'm hearing from certain companies about how technology is going the way of, uh, for real estate, like iBuyers and online listings and everything, we don't even need the agent anymore. I think about how much we contribute to the sales process for our clients. And I'm like, there's no way a computer is going to answer the phone for you at 10 o'clock at night when you're having a nervous breakdown about a retaining wall. I assure you, we are not going anywhere. I agree, because I also think that there's so many points of the transaction where everything can go wrong, and it is a very emotional process, I think, for most people, because it's not like we're going to Target to buy a $5 pair of socks. You know, it's it's 700000 or in Bay Area, same thing, like Starter Home, it's half a million dollar or $850,000, or even a million dollars. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of money on the line. 
So I don't really think real estate agent is going to be replaced soon. I mean, there's different models. Obviously, there's going to be agents who's going to be like, all I need to do is write your contract for you, and I take one percent. But the thing is, you only get one percent of service. You know, it's hundred percent. You're absolutely right. Yeah. That is the exact truth. When you, it's like I, I say to people like, when you're gonna go get a boob job, are you gonna pick <laughs> the guy that's two thousand dollars down the street, or are you gonna pick the guy that has five star reviews, as experienced track record? It might cost eight thousand. And the answer, of course, is you want the better surgeon. It's your body. Well, this is your money. This is your house. How in the world would you decide, oh, for a couple grand off, I'm going to potentially lose leverage, a good sales experience. I'm going to be on my own. There are a couple apps like in LA where people find properties online and then they have virtually no representation. Like their agent doesn't come to the uh, inspections. They find their own inspectors. They write their own repair list. Like they have no guidance. So when I'm on the other side of that transaction, I'm like, I don't want to work with somebody who doesn't have an agent unless they're working with me because I know I can guide them. But, you know, if they're going for this uh, cash back kind of agency, I'm like, you know, I know that it's going to be a troubled transaction. I'm going to end up doing twice the work. Buyer representation in most places it's free of charge to the buyer. Like you're not doing yourself any favors by choosing a discount brokerage, in my humble opinion. No, I agree with that. Or a discount well. job. And so I, <laughs> so I think the most, <laughs> the biggest challenge for a homeowner is that there's so many choices on the market, and they don't really know all these backstory that we know because we work in real estate. So, what are you some? Right. What are some of your recommendations for homeowners on which agent to choose to sell their house? So I think that in, there are a couple ways to choose a great agent. One is personal referrals, of course. Like if you know somebody who just bought a house and used an agent that's awesome and they are like, you have to use her, that's a really good endorsement and they have a personal experience to go with it, that's great. Also, the reviews online, they, are, they do matter. Does the agent have a track record? Is the agent established? Have they been working in that market long enough to kind of have a reputation that's going to help you get your offer accepted? That's another thing. That's another reason why I would never go through. If I were moving to another market, I would want the best agent in that market, not somebody who's offering me a discount because they have no business. Like there must be a reason why you're willing to give all your money back. It doesn't make sense to me. The other thing is that you have to choose an agent just like you have to choose a lender that you understand. Because the process can be overwhelming if you've never gone through it before. So one of the things that we do is we walk the buyer through the process. Like what you're about to experience is this, this, this. At the first meeting, we give you something to take with you as a guide for how it's about to go. And I even encourage my clients to consider the psychological impact of buying, which goes something like this. You get your pre-qual letter, you're pre-qualified for more than what you think you can afford, and then you start looking on the market and you're like, nothing is good enough. Somehow, whether it's 700000 or $2.5 million, there is nothing good enough for your money. It's such a weird psychological phenomenon. And then you find a property that's perfect and the price is right, but you're competing with five other people to get it. 
So you fight really hard, you play really hard, your agent's amazing, and then you get it, and then you go, oh my God, am I the person who paid the most for this house out of five people? Maybe I'm making a bad decision. Maybe I'm overpaying. And then it's the home inspection moment, and your brain starts going, oh man, the house has foundation issues, it has roof issues, it has electrical issues, it has plumbing issues, and you start to think, I should probably walk away from this, it's just too much for me. And then you tell your agent to cancel the contract. She tells you, don't worry, all this is fixable. We can ask for credits. We can ask for repairs. This is normal stuff. But you don't believe that because you're overwhelmed by the process. And all your reptilian brain wants to do is tell you, stay where it's safe. Keep renting. Don't do anything outside your comfort zone. And then you're back to square one and hunting for properties again. Like this is a really good way to lose out on a really great house, but it's a psychological process that happens to like 80% of the buyers that, that we work with. Like they, not all of them cancel, but they all go through this process once they get the property in escrow and they have to figure out whether or not they're making a mistake because it feels like it's so much money. In reality, you know, the number is, you're right, it's high. It's like 500 or 850,000, which sounds like a lot of money. But when you think about, again, Going back to the beginning, like you're putting 20% down or sometimes even 10% down on this property at historically low interest rates. It's cheaper than a student loan and you're getting a tax break and you're owning an appreciating asset that you can put your own mark on that is going to be a place you're not throwing money away but actually paying principal down and could turn into a long-term investment for you. There is nothing scary about this. So every dollar you spend on an electrical repair is gonna come back to you in value in later on down the line. Like This is a great investment. So I have to be there for them and walking them through that psychological process which I prepare them for in the beginning so that we can jump those hurdles more easily when we're actually in escrow. These are the things that make a great agent great. That's fantastic. That was the question, right? Yeah. No, but that, that was, I mean, that's really comprehensive. Because I think that's one of the challenges is that, that's why also, like, I think podcasts like this is really important because I really want consumers to understand what are the challenges that real estate agents and real estate uh, stagers are facing? Because those are the things that we don't really let clients see. So like right. you said, like we make it look really easy, but there are challenges and we do need understanding a lot of times from the consumers because especially with the real estate agent, even stagers, you know, a lot of stagers who are starting to work in real estate, they don't really fully understand what real estate agents do exactly. There's actually a lot of complicated mm -hmm. things going on behind the scene, but people may just see this one side of it and then was like, this doesn't make sense at all, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so yeah, so I think yep, it's, that's true. it's really important to discuss it and so people can understand all these nuances that we have to deal with as professionals. Yes, I agree. And so what are some of the common mistakes that you see home sellers make when they are putting their home on the market? Oh, gosh. Well, I think um, I think it's very easy to, uh, first of all, not staging their house is a big mistake. Choosing the wrong stager is a big mistake. So if your house is contemporary and it has all that kind of contemporary stuff that goes with it, and by contemporary, I mean maybe it was renovated in 2003 and it's got Home Depot light fixtures and and very taupe 
and warm browns kind of thing going on, you want to bring a stager in who can replace a light fixture and you want to make sure you're painting the walls bright white and somebody can soften it with a bohemian eclectic feel so that it feels more modern when people walk in. Otherwise, they're going to walk in and think, oh, we're going to have to update the granite countertops. So you're trying to create an ambiance that allows the house to kind of stand on its own merit without highlighting its inadequacies. So choosing the wrong stager, if you choose a contemporary living spaces kind of staging, people will be able to see that, oh God, cheap furniture, and then the house is from 2003, and you know we're gonna have to do a lot of work in order to make this our space. So the stager is so important. It's the most important piece of the marketing, I would say. Another mistake that people make is trying to sell the house while they live in it. That's a real challenge. And accessibility, especially during the first two weeks that you're on the market, is critical. We have to make sure buyers can get in. And when you're living in the house, you have to hide your toothbrushes and clear off all the countertops and can't have dishes in the sink and da 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 da, da. And a lot of times, sellers get exhausted after the first week. They're like, it's interruptive. They have people looking in their windows. you know. So I encourage my sellers to move out or go on vacation, hide their valuables, and like give me a couple weeks to just have access to the property until we get an escrow. And then, then it's more manageable. Another mistake people make is landscaping. If you don't freshen your landscaping or do a quick curb check to make sure the property's door is freshly painted or the trim is painted, that it presents as fresh from the street, people will literally drive past the open house and not even go in to see what's inside. So that curb appeal is really, really important. And usually good landscapers or gardeners can make a big impact on a very little budget, maybe 500 to 1000 bucks for some new mulch and a couple pretty flowers that are alive and trimming back your, you know, existing yard, for example. So those are three things I think that are kind of critical. Yeah. And I'm really glad you brought home staging because obviously that's what this show is about. Uh, so what are you looking for as a broker when you're hiring a home stager? Scale is really important. And also like, for example, being able to seat six has a much bigger impact than four when you're selling a house. You need to have six seats. So you need to find the space for the dining table that will allow you that. If you just do a tulip table with four little seats, people think, eh, it's more like a condo. Six in the same space really gives the impact of this is a house we can stay in for a while. It's going to give us room to grow and have dinner parties. And remember, we're marketing an aspirational lifestyle. The second thing is you have to have texture. Great artwork and texture. You cannot buy your canvas art pieces from uh, Home Depot or Ikea or something. You know, it can't be recognizable, crappy art. Like, you have to invest a little bit in prints that make sense. One of my stagers gave me a tip for my own house saying, like, oh, I go on Etsy and I do a digital download of one of the ink blots or, or whatever, and then I send it over to a canvas printing place with that image. So she buys the image on Etsy and then has it printed herself. But the image itself, the artwork itself, is, is like on trend. Bohemian eclectic staging is really successful in Northeast LA. So that's like fuzzy faux fur and Moroccan uh, wool rugs and West Elms coffee tables, pillows that are tribal. That's very on trend here for a certain market. When you start to go upscale, 
then you have to have, like, if you look at places that are getting a lot of press right now, like the wing, look at their design. It's kind of a Regency pastel velvet uh, and brush brass kind of feel. So the stager has to be on it with the design trends in a market that's as savvy as the market where you are. So if you're selling in, in New York or you're selling in LA, you need a stager with a point of view. And that point of view has to be something that the buyers are ready to and ex like see also as aspirational. So I encourage my stagers to look at West Elm and CB2 and anthropology for their kind of like what's on trend. And then, of course, you can do with it what you whatever your personal you know, taste is, but scale of couches, scale of dining room tables, great artwork, and a point of view are the, the things that are most important in choosing a stager. That's fantastic. And do you usually use the same stager or do you have in-house stagers or you have different staging company you're working with? That's a great question. We have multiple stagers that we work with and usually that's because we need to inventory, you know, it's some houses are taking a little bit longer to sell. So our favorite stagers might not have the inventory to stage the next listing we have. So we need to have a good group of stagers at the ready so we can make those phone calls when a property is about to go on the market. And the stagers need to be competitive in pricing with each other. That's the one other piece that I think you know, it determines whether or not they're going to get the job. So sometimes I have stagers who will say to me, like, let me know what the other bid is and I'll try and beat it. And if that's in the best interest of my seller, then I do. I let them know. I'm working for my seller. So I want my seller to have the best staging at the best price. Yeah, I think that makes total sense, especially from a client point of view. And other than staging, how can a listing stand out in a competitive market? Amazing photos, design features. So you want to make sure that when, if especially if you're doing a rehab, that you have a really great chandelier or really beautiful hardware on your kitchen. You know, like something that's different. We've been having subway tile and gray cabinets for so long. It's like we're sick of seeing it in the pictures. All of them look the same. So what can you do? That's a little bit different. Maybe you add um, clay tile or cement tile to your bathroom floor, or even just changing out your, your sconces or, or your dining room chandelier can have like a huge impact in the pictures. The house has to have moments. So you have to create those moments with your stager. You have to make sure that you get a vignette with your photographer that has the corner of the bed with the fuzzy pillow and the beautiful artwork and this morning moment, you know, something where a buyer is going to see it and go, ah, oh, that's a bedroom I want to wake up in. That's a bed I want to sleep in. It's about creating these moments. So your photography can't just be ordinary MLS, baloney photography, you have to do something a little bit more elevated in order to make your listing stand out. Yeah, I totally agree. It's that, like you said, aspirational lifestyle. This is really what we're selling. And that's why the photo shoot needs to recreate that too. That's why the moment is very important. Exactly. And on Instagram, you want to be showing moments because just showing houses over and over again on your real estate profile is not necessarily going to get you the impact that you want. People get sick of seeing houses. If they're not in the market, they don't even want to see it. But if you create moments, then they think, oh, I want to, you know, I want to do that in my bedroom. 
and they start to associate you with knowing what it is that they want. So as a real estate agent, that association is critical. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Because I think from a photography standpoint, because I used to work on photo shoots for companies like Pottery Barn, because they're based in San Francisco. And a lot of these catalog shoots is really about creating that moment, right? They're obviously selling product, but at the same time, it's very much about the ambiance, about the lifestyle, the dream lifestyle that potential buyers want. So it's the same thing in real exactly. estate. We have to sell that lifestyle. Exactly. And I want to talk about your book a little bit because I feel like it's also a topic that is often overlooked, even though women as a population has a very significant place in our economy today. So in your book, Break Up With Rental, you specifically focus on professional women to build wealth through real estate. So why women? Right. Do you think women have a different attitude when it comes to money than men? Yes, I do. Um, so I used to host a show on FYI called My City's Just Not That Into Me. Ooh. It was based on the Miranda moment from Sex and the City. I love it. And in that show, I went all over the country and I met with people who, some of them were single women, some of them were couples, who were considering moving to another city or state. And they wanted to know how far their money would go in like a different city or state or could they completely change their lifestyle. So it's kind of like how much does $600,000 get you in Portland, Oregon versus Seattle versus Austin, Texas, you know, that kind of thing. So one of the women that I met was a lawyer who was making six figures and had been doing so for 10 years and she was still renting her property and it was like a $5,000 a month rental in DC. And I'm like, what? are you doing? And she said, well, I just, you know, I'm just waiting until I, you know, get married or know what my future holds. I'm like, why are you waiting? And it made me think how we are now with the pendulum swinging toward equality. We are actually expected to be superwomen. We have to go to college, have a career. We have debt. We're supposed to be super moms. And, you know, everything perfect about us, get our nails done, have our hair done, look fit, go on vacations, be, you know, have this work-life balance. And it's a lot, but nobody has taught, at least nobody taught me how to manage my money. The equality movement teaches us how to work for the same pay, I would say, but not necessarily what to do with it once you have it. So in Break Up With Your Rental, I interview women who have created wealth from real estate from virtually nothing, myself included. And there are many ways to skin that cat. One woman bought her first property using a credit card. She took 10000 out. It had 0% uh, interest for like 12 months. She took 10000 out. She used it on a down payment on a property in another state. And she bought it with that 10000 and then rented it out so that the tenant's Monthly rent covered her credit card payment and some profit. So she literally used none of her money, her own money, to make monthly profit. And now she's repeatedly buying these properties and turning them into residual income for her. And that's the key is that women have to break out of the idea that real estate is something we buy when we get married to raise our kids in. That's not all it has to be. Of course, it can be that, but it also can be a foundation for building 
a portfolio of assets that appreciate over time so that when you meet Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright, you can sell off some of these properties and buy the dream house as your first house instead of your third house. Now you've got the picket fence and the flat yard in the neighborhood with the great schools that you've always dreamed of. But it starts early in your career. The other thing is that women tend to, in my experience, not buy if they think they can't afford to buy in the city that they live in. So my intent with the book is also to encourage women to think outside of the areas where they live. Like professional women, we live in Chicago, New York, LA, and they're expensive cities. If you're making $150,000 a year, sometimes still the majority of your payment is rent. So in the book, I'm encouraging people to think outside where they live, two hours up the road, or even in another state, or maybe the town they grew up in probably has property that's $100,000 to buy. 10% down is only 10 grand, and you can make a cash flow positive investment with very little cash out of pocket just by turning it into a rental and holding on to it. So even in 10 years, if you sell it for 200,000, you're making a better return on that property than you would on a 401k. And that is where we need to open up to the possibility of not just seeing real estate as something that we live in, but something that can actually make money for us and ultimately help us attract a higher quality partner if we don't already have one. I think that is a very important thing. It's the mindset, isn't it? It's because I, I'm kind of like the second group. I always wanted to invest in real estate. Like I want to buy my first home. But the problem is that I'm thinking about the place I'm living in. And San Francisco is really expensive now. There's no way I can buy a home there. But like you said, yeah, if I drive two hours, three hours out, I can probably afford to buy something there. Right. And you can keep renting where you actually want to live, buy something somewhere else and turn it into an investment. So in five years from now, when the market's changed a little bit and you might have more power as a buyer, now you have something that's appreciated $300,000 and you can take that money out and put it as a down payment. Because if you're just thinking that you're going to save 100000 or 200000 from uh, a couple hundred bucks every paycheck, it's very difficult to do and it's a long it seems like it's going to take forever, you know, so that makes it unattainable. It's attainable if you start early in your career and you buy things that are affordable. You buy what you can when you can, as opposed to waiting for this magic right time that never really exists. I tell people, you know, when the market's appreciating, people go, oh, it's not a good time to buy because the prices are going up. We're at the top of the market. If I buy now, I'm at the top of the market. Like it always feels like that in an appreciating market. I've been hearing people say that for the past six years. Yeah. And then when the market starts turning down, nobody goes, oh, market's turning down. Great time to buy. Right. No, that's not what they say. They think, oh, I'm going to buy it for a million today and it's going to be worth 800000 tomorrow. I'm not going to buy now. Your brain is always telling you the reasons why. You shouldn't do something outside your comfort zone. And the only reason it's outside your comfort zone is because you haven't been trained on it. 401ks, for example, when you get your first professional job, they've got the 401k salespeople in there talking to you about matching funds and blah, 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 and pick your risk interest level and da, 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 right early on. So you're like, oh, 401k, that's an investment I feel safe about. So you put your little bit every from your paycheck, a little bit in your 401k, and then you take your bonuses and you go on a trip to Tulum with your girlfriends for her you know, 28th birthday party or whatever, or you buy your Louboutins because those are the things that are most important to you and attainable to you at that exact moment. 
You can buy so many more pairs of Louboutins and trips to Tulum if you buy an appreciating asset and sit on it for five years, letting it pay you $750 in profit every month. And then when you sell it, have it give you back 200 grand, for example. Like the, the benefits of changing your mind about how you spend your money early on in your professional career are critical to having equal footing in your adult life. I think that is a very, very good advice. And so for people who are buying, let's say, three hours outside of where they're living, like how do you recommend them to manage their property? Yeah, it's a great question. So for me, for example, I own property in, in Big Bear. And I don't live in Big Bear, so I have a company called At Homeness that manages my rental. You know, they market it, they have somebody local on site who manages it, greets guests and that kind of thing, lets people in, they manage the cleaning, and it costs me 16 to 18% a month to have a service do it for me. But it's well worth it because they do everything. They do everything. Yeah. They do everything. I don't even think about it. They manage the calendar. They manage the daily rate. Like you just, it's, it's, I don't even have to think about it. However, if you're buying something in a place where the, it makes more sense, for example, to have a long-term tenant in there, your real estate agent may be able to help you with property management. Some real estate agents offer that. If not, there should be a property management company in that area who can help you manage it. You should be able to just buy it and let go. Choose a good tenant and let go. Right. And how do you know where is the place to buy? I think that's one of the other hang-up that people have. Like, let's say I'm buying three hours outside where I'm living. I'm not really familiar with that area. So where would I know sure. to buy? I think some of the best places to buy when you're first kind of toying with this idea are cities that have colleges in them because then you're getting tenants who leave after a year. So you don't have long-term tenants renting at under market prices. You know, there, there's turnover. You'll always have an opportunity to re-rent at a great price. And frequently college towns have like great infrastructure. So, you know, you might look at places like State College, Pennsylvania or Ann Arbor, Michigan, even Austin, Texas. Austin has a great real estate market. They have a great culture there. It's the city that is a capital and also a college town. You know, you've got hospitals, lots of business, new uh, entrepreneurs are moving there all the time. So there you have kind of a great culture to buy into and you can still get a single family house for like $300,000. It's insane. There's also a town in New Jersey called Rahway, R-A-H-W-A-Y. You can buy a renovated row house walking distance to the transit train and it's about a 30 minute commute into Manhattan. And it's got a little town center. It's a bedroom community you know they say people come you know come there sleep and then go back to the city but it's only 30 minutes outside the city and it's like three hundred thousand dollars for a renovated townhouse it's easy to rent when you are that close to the city and yet it's just like sleeper place so you know you have to get your prequal and if you're looking nationally i would say go through quicken loans or some some lender that loans nationally get your pre-qualification, find out how much you can afford, and then start looking online at different cities and see what you, you know, see what you can get. I encourage people to think about the town they grew up in too. It might be a great place. Maybe you still have family there that could help be on site, you know, in case you need them to help with something like coordinate a roofer or something like that. So for me, that's State College, Pennsylvania. 
the prices there are really cheap. There's a university, so there's a big employer, and it has a culture and a community, has college students who can rent, and the, you know, the prices are really, really good. Uh, I know another agent who bought in his house that he grew up in, was on the market in Cleveland, Ohio, for $89,000. So that's only $8,900 is 10% down. There are even 5% down loans. Like it's possible you could acquire for five grand. That's amazing. And then rent it out. You know, it's crazy. So someplace that's familiar to you might be a good place to start because you know what a good neighborhood is or what a more desirable neighborhood is, I should say. Not good, but desirable. So We're not really allowed to say good or bad, but (laughs) by good, I mean the prices are good. But so many good advice today. And so we're coming up to the hour and I just have one last question for you. What is the number one tip you will give to home sellers when it comes to selling their homes? Price your property in a way that gives buyers the impression of value. That's great. Don't overprice your property. The most important thing is that buyers walk in ready to jump any hurdles that you can't fix yourself. Those hurdles are typically location or a small backyard or maybe you hear some highway noise or something like that. Whatever the hurdle is for your property, you want to accommodate for it in your price point. So price is a marketing tool. Use it as a marketing tool and allow the buyers to perceive the value so that you get multiple offers and have more leverage in the sales process. That's amazing. Thank you so much for being on the show today. There's so many good advice That's today. That's a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And anybody who's interested in the book can go on at Break Up With Your Rental on Instagram. Follow us on Instagram. And the book is available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Perfect. I'll put that in the show notes as well so people have access to that. Okay. Yeah. So that's it for today's show. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to help and support the show, there are three ways to do so. You can leave a review and rating on iTunes. You can share the show on social media, or you can donate to support the maintaining costs for the podcast. You can make a donation through the show notes or on the sidebar of our site. If you haven't left a review on iTunes, please do so. This will help us grow the show and book more guests. If you have any questions, feedback, and suggestions, you can comment on the show notes. You can also find the show notes by going to stagemore.com slash podcast. That's it. Have a fantastic week and happy staging.